This feels like my corner. <laughs> I told someone before, with all the hours between Spain and here, if anything happens and I drift off to sleep, somebody just throws something up here. It really is good to be here. It seems like a dream. In one way, it seems like a long time. In another way, it seems like it's just been a few weeks since we did this last. But one of the things about spiritual friendships is when you have a true spiritual friendship with someone, you don't need to, it's not like an infatuation. You don't have to be constantly with them in order for the friendship to be maintained. Across the miles and the time, when you come back together again, you find out things have not changed. You know, because it's a friendship that's on a different level. And I really feel that way when I'm here. So I thank the Lord for you and for your prayers. Our old enemy, the clock, is already at work. So we're going to save the chit-chat for later. And let's go right to Mark chapter 5. We're going to try to take some character sketches from the Gospels. And see what happened in the lives of people who met the Lord. And what the Lord has to say to us about our lives from that. Mark chapter 5. Where's Randy? I want to ask him, who picked the music tonight? Randy, tell everybody right now, did you know what I was going to preach about? I found something in every song that was sung here tonight about what I'm preaching about. I wrote down a couple of them because I thought, if I don't, I'll forget. I'm so forgetful, I'll forget that line later on. But I was thinking, it looks like somebody's uh, had a copy of the script. <laughs> you, yeah, that's right, someone did. It's the Lord. You know? And that's what we mean when we talk about ministry that's um, led by the Holy Spirit. When he's the common denominator and he's guiding us and we're sensitive to him, then even when we're not checking with each other ahead of time, he's doing it. And you find that out. It's one of the things I like because it shows you it's a confirmation that the Lord is in it. That he's doing something that we couldn't do and that we didn't do. And we want him to continue to do that. Not just in the preparations, but in the application of his word our lives because that's why we're reading it this is not entertainment this is for enrichment and edification of our lives and for the glory of God Mark chapter 5 first 20 verses we're going to read about a man who couldn't say greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world a man who couldn't say that at the beginning of Mark chapter 5. But by the time you get down to verse 20, he can say it. In case there might be someone here tonight who couldn't say that, we want you to be able to say it before the meeting is over. Amen. Verse 1. The word of the Lord says, And they came over to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gadarenes. And when he was come out of the ship, immediately... There met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit who had his dwelling among the tombs and no man could bind him, no, not with chains because that he had been often bound with fetters and chains and the chains had been plucked asunder by him and the fetters broken in pieces, neither could any man tame him. And always night and day he was in the mountains and in the tombs 
crying and cutting himself with stones. But when he saw Jesus afar off, he ran and worshipped him and cried with a loud voice and said, What have I to do with thee, Jesus, thou Son of the Most High God? I adjure thee by God that thou torment me not. For he said unto him, Come out of the man, thou unclean spirit. And he asked him, What is thy name? And he answered, saying, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he besought him much that he would not send them away out of the country. Now there were nigh unto the mountains a great herd of swine feeding, and all the devils besought him, saying, Send us into the swine, that we may enter into them. And forthwith Jesus gave them leave, and the unclean spirits went out and entered into the swine, and the herd ran violently down a steep place into the sea. They were about two thousand, and were choked in the sea. And they that fed the swine fled, and told it in the city, and in the country, and they went out to see what it was that was done. And they come to Jesus. And they see him that was possessed with the devil. And had the legion sitting and clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And they that saw it told them how it befell him that was possessed with the devil. And also concerning the swine. And they began to pray him to depart out of their coasts. And when he was come into the ship. He that had been possessed with the devil prayed him that he might be with him. Howbeit Jesus suffered him not, but saith unto him, Go home to thy friends, and tell them how great things the Lord hath done for thee, and hath had compassion on thee. And he departed, and began to publish in Decapolis how great things Jesus had done for him, and all men did marvel. And when Jesus was passed over again by ship to the other side, much people gathered to him, and he was nigh unto the sea. We're going to stop there. Let's pray and ask the Lord's blessing on his word. Heavenly Father, once again this evening, we come into thy presence and we ask for that special help of the Holy Spirit that we are all aware that we need. For our Lord is the vine, and we are the branches, and that's all we'll ever be. Separated from him. Separated from you, Lord. We can do nothing. We would be fools to come tonight and to trust in human wisdom, human cleverness, human genius of expression. We're not interested in men's ideas, Lord. We want you to come and meet with us. We want you to come and speak to our hearts through your word. So that when we leave here tonight, we'll be able to say, tonight I met with Jesus. Tonight the Lord spoke to me through his word. He had something for me. And we're all different. We have different needs. Each one is in his or her particular place and moment in life. But you know us. And you know how to take from this passage something and put it right into the heart of each of us. And we ask that you would do it. We give you that liberty. You already have it, but we want you to know you have complete freedom to move and minister in our midst and to touch our hearts and lives. And we ask that you do it. We invite you to do it. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 This is one of the strangest evangelistic crusades in history. In fact, I sometimes say that... Um, if Jesus had been a student at Bible school, 
studying, doing a course on evangelism, and this were his practical exam, he would have failed. I mean, by, by modern standards, you understand what I'm saying? The school would have failed him. And we're going to get into why as we go along. Strangest evangelistic crusade, one of the strangest in history. Only one man got saved. Well, I know in Matthew and in Luke, the parallel passages, they mentioned that there were two, and that's all right. But here, Mark, as a writer, focuses on one in particular of those two. And we believe there were two, but Mark's going to focus on one, so that's what we're going to focus on. Say two got saved. Fine. Two out of how many? But before we even start to go into the passage and take out the, the meat of it for us, let's just remember this. Everyone got help from the Lord that day who wanted it. Everyone got help from the Lord who wanted it. There is that thing in spiritual life, and although we know that God is all-powerful, and he can do anything he wants to and everything he wants to, because everything he wants to do is good and right, but there is a such thing as cooperation with God. He doesn't need our cooperation. But he's given us a will, and he respects it, and he leaves us free to choose. And as I had opportunity to say to someone not too long ago, you're free to make your choice, and you're free to suffer the consequences of your choice. The Lord gives us that freedom. Here we have it. Let's look at it. A man that no one could do anything with. A man that society had given up on. But who was aware underneath all of the the trouble on the surface of his life and in the depths of his life still. He was aware of his need. And when he saw Jesus, he made his move. And there are too many people who are aware that they have troubles and difficulties. And they see Jesus they know something about Jesus. They see him afar off, like it says here, but they don't make their move. They don't run to get closer to him. They don't cooperate. The opportunity is there from God's point of view, but the opportunity has to be there from your point of view and from my point of view. We have to make the move. We have to open up. We have to cooperate with God. And in the, the measure that we cooperate with him, we respond to his presence and to his offer of help, he will come out to us and meet us with abundant help and power and love and grace. He has all of it to give. But God never forces it on anyone. A brother who discipled me for many years told me one time when I was um, full of enthusiasm and thought I had it all by the tail. And uh, he said, you're going to have to learn, Carl, In Christian ministry, a very simple lesson. You cannot help people who don't want to be helped. Even if they need it desperately. Even if you have the answer, you're certain of it. You cannot help people who do not want to be helped. And we see that illustrated here in this chapter, in these verses that we have before us. Someone who wanted to be helped and a lot of other people who needed help just as bad as he did, but they didn't want it. 
And that's the difference, the cooperation. The Lord is able to help us, but he does not help people who don't want to be helped. It's that simple. So we read it and we look at it and we talk about the the demon-possessed man here and what happened. And it's history, but we're making history tonight. And so we have to ask, each of us has to ask himself, what about me? Do I want to be helped? Or am I okay where I am? I'm good. Or do I want to be helped? I don't believe in coincidences. I don't believe the Lord brought me all the way here from Spain just to have some of your wonderful fellowship, although that would be for me plenty. (laughs) I believe the Lord's at work. And I believe he has things to say. And he's hoping that we're responsive to him. Let's look at it. Here's the arrival. Verse 1 is the arrival of the Lord. And that's a story in itself because that takes us back into chapter 4. Some of you who know me know I like to go backwards instead of forwards in exposition sometimes. I back up and instead of go forward and I never get done with the passage. (laughs) Reverse exposition, I guess they call it. Or maybe it's dyslexia, expository dyslexia. I don't know what it is. (laughs) But at any rate, uh, verse 1 is a story in itself. Verses 2 to 15, the ministry of the Lord. First is arrival, then is ministry from verses 2 to 15, and then we have to 16 to 20, the reactions to his ministry. Reactions to his ministry. So let's go back to verse 1 and look at the arrival. They came over unto the other side of the sea into the country of the Gadarenes. Now that takes us back, as we said, and I'm not going to spend any time on this. You want to read it, you'll have to go read and study it on your own time, not on my nickel. Uh, Verse 35 of chapter 4. The same day when even was come, he said unto them, Let us pass over to the other side. And when they had sent away the multitude, they took him even as he was in the ship, And there were also with him other little ships, and there arose a great storm of wind, and the waves beat into the ship, so that it was now full. And he was in the hinder part of the ship, asleep on a pillow. And they awake him, and say unto him, Master, carest thou not that we perish? And he arose, and rebuked the wind, and said unto the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said unto them, Why are you so fearful? How is it that ye have no faith? And they feared exceedingly and said to one another, What manner of man is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Sailing with Jesus on the Sea of Galilee was an experience. And on this particular occasion, you see, he said to them in verse 35, Let us pass over to the other side. He knew where they were going. He knew where he was going. He knew what he wanted to do. He had a mission. He had a a purpose, an objective. They didn't know it all. They didn't know everything that was going to happen. They knew that their job was to go and to row. And that was their job. That's what they did. And so they're rowing to the other side. And in the middle of the Sea of Galilee, which is not all that big, Kinnereth is its name in Hebrew. It means harp because it's shaped like a harp. In the middle of that little sea, A terrible windstorm came up, as they often do there. The wind comes down off of the hills, 
which are all around the Sea of Galilee, and there's nothing to stop it. It's a beautiful sea when it's calm, but it can get nasty. And especially for a small boat, probably by um, American uh, Board of Transportation and Safety standards, probably a little overcrowded. I don't think they had a life preserver for everyone on board or the proper lighting and all of that other, uh, those other safety requirements. But at any rate, when it broke out, now they were going to have a test. Before they ever got to the other side, this terrible storm. And they got a lesson before they ever reached the spot where the conflict was really coming. They got a lesson in the Lord's power and authority. He spoke and the wind obeyed him. Wouldn't it be nice? You with me? Wouldn't it be nice if we knew how to do like the wind and the sea? Wouldn't it be nice? We just got through going through, or we're not quite through the book of Jonah. We're up to chapter 4 in Seville. And we're seeing how many things the Lord prepared. The wind and the fish and the gourd, and the worm, and the wind again, and the sun's being down, and everything the Lord sends along to do his job does it except for Jonah. It's pretty bad, you know, when in chapter 1 you have to say to your children, now, be like the fish, not like Jonah. Ask the Lord, make me like the fish. (laughs) Why? Because the fish did what the Lord told him to do. Fish don't philosophize. They don't reason and say, well, I know it says that, but in my particular situation, in my personal interpretation, I believe the Lord would let me. Fish don't do that. Wind doesn't do that. It just does what the Lord says. He rose and rebuked the wind and said, peace be still. And the wind ceased. There was a great calm and it says that they said to one another, what manner of man is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Well, they're going to get an answer to that in chapter 5. That's the introduction to chapter 5. That's his arrival. He rebukes their lack of faith. And the fact that they who were with him in the same boat and they who traveled with him and observed him like some of us do sometimes, it was not sinking into their heart who he really was. They were near him and they knew things about him. But it really hadn't dawned on them yet who he really was. They're asking this. These are the disciples. These are not uh, news people or ignorant townspeople who come out to see him. Somebody coming out to do an interview. What kind of a man is this? These are the men who lived with him, who ate with him, who traveled with him. They were by his side constantly. And they say, what manner of man is this? How easy it is to be near Jesus and to know things about him but not to know him, to know the facts and not the person. They're going to get a chance to learn. Somebody doesn't want the gospel to come to the Gadarenes. Many people think, and I think they're probably right, that that windstorm that came up was not a coincidence. It wasn't something the meteorologists could have foretold. They put it up on the screen that evening, what the high and low for the day of the Sea of Galilee and which direction the winds were coming from, they would have blown the forecast completely. People think that this was an attack from Satan. 
In the book of Job, we know that with permission from God, Satan caused the wind to beat against the house where the sons of Job were and caused it to collapse and kill his whole family. Somebody doesn't want the gospel to come to the Gadarenes. And there's already a lot of devils or demons in that country on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Some of them you already recognize as we went through the reading, I'm sure, but there are others I don't think you did. And I think you're going to have a, a little surprise before we come to the end of the chapter or the end of the passage. They arrive on the other side of the sea where the Lord told them in chapter 4 and verse 35 they were going. They arrive in chapter 5 and verse 1. The land of the Gadarenes. What do we know about that? Go back to the book of Numbers, chapter 32. Look into the book of Deuteronomy. You'll also see it. The land of the Gadarenes, Gad, Reuben, the tribes of Reuben and Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, because Manasseh was a huge tribe, and half of them lived on the west side of the Jordan River, and the other half lived on the east side with the tribes of Reuben and Gad. Because when the children of Israel were coming into the country, when they were moving in at the end of the 40 years in the wilderness, these people, it says, well, let's go look at it. Numbers, let's just read it. It's just a verse. Numbers chapter 32. So you can see where the problem began. Numbers 32. Verse 1. Now the children of Reuben and the children of Gad had a very great multitude of cattle. And when they saw the land of Jazer and the land of Gilead, that, beyond, that, that behold, the place was a place for cattle, the children of Gad and the children of Reuben came and spake unto Moses and to Eleazar the priest and unto the princes of the congregation, saying, and basically what they do is they ask for that piece of land on the other side of the Jordan. They didn't want to go in. They didn't want to cross the Jordan. They wanted to stay on that side because they had concern about their livestock. They had a lot of livestock, a lot of cattle. And so they're allowed to stay on the basis, on the promise that they will cross the Jordan and fight with their brethren to take the land. And that they'll go at the front of the conflict and not the, the rear of it. And then when all the conquering and the possessing is done, then they're allowed to return to their land. But that was the beginning of a problem. The children of Reuben and Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh that's mentioned later on. They thought a lot of their cattle. That was their highest priority. Cattle. Not unclean animals. That was a legitimate thing. Jews were allowed to have cattle. They were, they were allowed to eat beef. They were allowed to raise cattle and, and consume that. But over the years, it degenerated. We're not going to go into all the history of what happened, how that was the area that was first attacked by the, other, the heathen nations, and they mixed with the heathen nations and the whole uh, spiritual um, atmosphere, environment degenerated until the Gadites... In the land of the Gadarenes, they're mixed with everybody else around there. And now they're not raising cattle. 
Now it's pigs. Now it's pig farms. Oh, they're still doing it. They're still doing it. Right at the south end. The south. If you stand and look at the Sea of Galilee, like my hand, is the Jordan River coming out the bottom of it. Right here at the southeast end, though, there's a huge pig farm today. It stinks to high heaven. The Orthodox Jews have made a law that you're not allowed to raise swine, not allowed to raise pigs in Israel. How do they get around that then? Well, they build a platform. About as high as this platform here. They build a platform. This is the Jewish mind at work. Jacob, the deceiver. They build a platform. They put the pigs up on this platform, this huge area. They're not in the land of Israel. We're not raising pigs in the land of Israel. They're up on the platform. That's what's happening. This all started back in Numbers 32. They saw that land and they thought about their cattle. Their cattle before everything else. And Moses had to warn them, don't put the cattle first. You're going to go at the head of the armies and fight? Yes, yes, yes. But all the time they're thinking, and then we're going to go back and take care of our cattle. And then we're going to go back and take care of our cattle. And then we're going to raise more cattle. And over the years, things degenerated to the point where now it's pigs. And they're completely disconnected from Israel. They were overrun, absorbed by the heathen nations. But there's still Jews living in that area. They're Jews that have been secularized. But Jesus is going to preach to them. He knows about them. They're going to get the gospel too. They're going to hear about the Messiah too. Even though they were content to raise cattle and then pigs. They're going to get to look the Messiah in the face. And so here they go. He arrives. Come to the country of the Gadarenes. But now you know what kind of people the Gadarenes were. Where they descended from. And what their priorities were, without going any more into that, which is a story in itself, the ministry begins immediately in verse 2. And it says, when he was come out of the ship, immediately, and immediately is one of those words, or right away, that appears over and over in the book of Mark. Things happen that way, quickly, immediately this happened. Immediately there met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. This is the unexpected welcoming party. Nobody came from City Hall. Nobody came from the Board of Regents, from the Mayor's Office, the Chamber of Commerce. It was the village idiot, they would say. The crazy man. The graveyard man. The cemetery monster. And who knows what kind of names they had for him. There met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. That's the only welcome he got. A place of death. A place of loneliness. We call it that in Spain. The cemetery is called the neighborhood of the quiet. They make good neighbors. Don't play the music loud. Never, never cause any disturbances. The neighborhood of the quiet. And some people call it the neighborhood of the people who can't talk anymore, the neighborhood of the people who don't tell. But it all means the same thing. This is this man's company. He met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit, but apparently the Lord had an appointment with him, just like he did with that woman at the well of Sychar in John chapter 4. 
He's coming to meet with this man and with the people around him who weren't doing anything for him. He had an unclean spirit, it says. A demon. That's an understatement. <laughs> a demon. A demon that brought all of his friends. Legion. And right away as we come into the, the spiritual problem in this man's life in verse 2, we have a piece of advice for us. Be careful who you let into your life. Be careful what you let into your life because it might bring its friends. You know what the foot in the door strategy is? You know the old story they tell in the Arab world about the camel out in the desert at night and it's cold in the desert and he's complaining because they say camels are good at complaining and uh, he's complaining and he says so cold out here and and he sticks his nose up to the edge of the tent and he says, just let me put my nose in the tent to get my nose warm a little. It's so cold out here in the desert at night. And the man says, no. And the camel says, please. And finally, he lets him put his nose in the tent. Oh, well, now his nose is warm and the rest of him seems even colder. And pretty soon the story goes on. And pretty soon the whole camel is in the tent and the man is out in the desert at night. <laughs> Be careful who you let into your life. And be careful who you let into your heart. Because we're working with, a, with an enemy, against an enemy, who's a deceiver. And you see, the trick about deceit, the whole idea of deceit is, you don't know what's happening to you. A person who's an artist, uh, it's a pickpocket, is not a purse snatcher. He doesn't go riding by a woman on a, uh, he's on a bicycle and he's riding by a woman and snatch her purse or run by and snatch her purse and knock her down and run off. The pickpocket is an artist. The person never knows their pocket was picked. He doesn't know it. Until he gets home or he goes to buy something later on. I was standing with that man in the plaza talking to him. And he asked me, did I remember him? And I said, no. And he said, oh, it'll come to you later on. You'll remember me. Now I remember him. <laughs> he took my wallet. How could he do that? That's deceit. You don't know it happened. And you see, this is the thing in the spiritual life. To get in... And to begin to do his damage, first of all, he's got to present himself as someone who's not going to do any damage. It's in your benefit. You like it. It's in your favor. It's okay. It's harmless. In Spanish, we have a saying, una vez al año no te hace daño. Once a year can't do any harm. And that's the way it begins. You know, I look at this man. He's a ruined shell of a man here in this verse in verse 3 had his dwelling among the tombs he came running out of the tombs because that's where he lived no man could bind him not with chains they couldn't tame him he was always day and night in the mountains in the tombs crying and that word crying is a Greek word that comes from the sound that a raven makes ah ah like that <laughs> it's a, it's a Sound that grates on your nerves. And they took it and then they applied it to people who yelled and screamed at the top of their voice and got on everyone's nerves. 
making a raucous noise. And I wonder what parents told their children. Don't go out near the cemetery at night. You hear that? Oh! And I wonder if the children did what we used to do when we were growing up. My brother Ken knows it. Hey, Ken. Remember the story about bloody bones? Ghost stories. And we tell this story, and they start telling us, say, Bloody Bones is coming to get you. He's on the first step. He's on the second step. And we'd all get tenser and tenser. And finally, we never knew which step was going to be. And suddenly, whoa, and everybody jumped. These crazy stories we told. Well, the cemetery man. Watch out for the graveyard man. He's out there. And he comes running out of the tombs. This is not a story. Mothers told their children to be careful. Fathers told their children to be careful. And people of the villages would watch us if they saw strangers coming through the area. And they said, don't take that road. Take this one. Don't go that way. Why not? Never mind. Never mind. Just go this way. The cemetery man. He's not a legend. These are not parables. This is a reality. This is what happens to people who are not careful about what and who they let into their lives. This is what happens to people whose lives have been completely ruined and they stop and others stop and look at them and they stop and they say, how did it get this far? How did this happen? How did I come to this place in life? A man who's lost, he's desperate. Society has given up on him. They said they tried to tame him and they couldn't. He's a psychologist and a sociologist nightmare. Nobody can do anything with him. He can't be reformed. He can't be trained. He can't be restrained. And how did he get that way? Look at what the Lord says down in verse 19. Go home to thy friends. One time this man had a home. I think about this when I see homeless people out on the street. And I see people whose lives have been ruined by sin. And I talk to my boys about that. Do you know? You see that person over there? He was once a little boy like you. Had a mommy and a daddy. And home. Maybe brothers and sisters. Something went dreadfully wrong. Somewhere. Somewhere a wrong turn was taken. And sometimes those wrong turns, the world that we live in can do nothing about them. You find yourself going down a one-way, dead-end street as far as the world is concerned. And no way out. Why do you think people commit suicide? Because they don't think there's any hope. If anybody ever had a reason from the, from the modern humanistic perspective, if anybody ever had a reason to commit suicide, here was one. Here was one. But just like we saw last year when we were talking about that Philippian jailer, remember that? And Paul said when the man was about to kill himself, he didn't say, go ahead, you lousy, and lay a few names on him for the way he treated the prisoners. He said, do thyself no harm. Don't harm yourself, he said. Because that's all you do when you commit suicide. 
you just harm yourself. You just add one more blow to your ruined life. If this man didn't commit suicide, if this man had hope and his life could be changed, I think the Lord that helped him could help anybody here tonight. I think he can help anybody here tonight. Anybody, hear me, who's willing to cooperate with him. Anybody. He'll step out to meet you. If you'll recognize your opportunity. That's what he did, it says. When they came out, of the, he was come out of the ship, immediately there met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. Jesus crossed the Sea of Galilee and the man came out of the tombs to meet him. You got two people moving toward a meeting together. Now the Lord's moving and he moves. But we have to ask ourselves, and maybe there's somebody here tonight I have to ask, when are you going to get up and make your move? The Lord's moving. He's ready to meet you. And he can do it. But you just sit there. You just stand there. You just stay in that spot in your life where you're stagnant. Where you're hopeless. Where there don't seem to be any solutions. And then you complain about it. And feel sorry for yourself. There's no help in that. Got to take your opportunity. There met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit who had his dwelling among the tombs. It says no man could bind him. No, not with chains. They tried to control him. They couldn't control him. Not with chains, not with fetters. He had power to break those because people who are possessed of demons, these demons uh, endow people sometimes with amazing spirit, uh, spiritual, uh, excuse me, physical strength. He broke the fetters, broke the chains, and no one could tame him. He could tame lions, but not this man. Lion trainers couldn't do anything with him. He couldn't be civilized. They couldn't structure his life. Send him to more counseling sessions. How are you going to counsel with him? You've got to run behind him through the tombs and over the mountains to try to counsel him. So you tie him down so he'll listen. That doesn't work. No man could tame him. And sometimes we get ourselves into that kind of a situation where nobody around us, we look around and we say, who can help me? Or we see people and we say, who can help that person? Well, I know someone who can help people like that. I know someone who can do it. I know someone who can help hopeless cases. Someone who can straighten out lives that are such an awful mess that no one can figure out how they got the way they are or what the way out is. And they seem, from a human standpoint, hopeless. And sometimes we may not think we're as bad off as this demon-possessed man, but sometimes we run into situations like that in life where it just seems like everything is so tangled up and messed up and confused. And we just say, it's like when I used to go fishing, and you throw out the fishing line, and it would make a, what they call a bird's nest. You know, and just, you'd look at it and you say, I got the bait in the water, the bird's nest here on the reel, and before I ever get this straightened out, they're going to steal my bait, 
And I'm not going to spend the rest of the day here straightening this stupid mess out. Get out your pocket knife. Pull down to the place where the bird is. You can just cut it. Throw it all off and start over. Forget it. It's not worth the time. And we feel that way about life sometimes. And sometimes people back off from a commitment, a marriage commitment, a church commitment, a friendship, some kind of a situation. They just back off completely and cut the line because they say, I can't figure out how this can be straightened out. Toss it over. God can straighten out tangles. He can do it. The men couldn't tame him. No man could. But things that people can't do. Man's impotence is God's opportunity. And this is what's happening here. So you come down to Verse 5, and you see how what kind of a noise he's making, what kind of an awful scene this is. And I, every time I read that, I think about those childhood ghost stories. Think about those noises they were hearing out in the, in the cemetery and on the mountains day and night. Cutting himself, self-destructive. Self-destructive behavior. Crying, complaining, lamenting, sighing, groaning. I'm sure he was in anguish. Anguish of spirit, anguish of emotions, physical anguish. He was in pain and he was causing himself pain. There didn't seem to be any way out. But this is what he did. And you come to verse 6 and this is what I like. In verse 6 it says, But when he saw Jesus afar off, he ran. And worshipped him. Now that word worshipped him is not uh, to be taken that he was a believer in Jesus already. It's a word that uh, they use proscunio. It means to kiss the hand or to kiss towards someone. Or it means to, they would come and, and kneel down and put their forehead on the ground in front of the person. It was an act of self-humiliation. And reverence toward that person. They would humble themselves before that person. It was also a posture in which a person asked for help. He showed respect, but they asked for help. They went down. Did I tell you the story about Alice in Wonderland last year? I'm getting to that point in life where I can't remember what stories I already told. Now, I don't know if you read Alice in Wonderland or not. You know, in Spain, um, we say there's two books in every home in Spain that everybody has and nobody reads. The Quixote and the Bible. A lot of people know about Alice in Wonderland, but, but they don't know anything about the story. The little girl chasing the rabbit who was awfully terribly late, and she followed him and fell into a hole, the bottom of the hole, and... And he ran off through an even smaller hole, a rabbit hole, and she looked to see where he had gone, and there was a beautiful, wonderful world, Wonderland. But she couldn't get in. She wanted to follow him, but she couldn't get in because the hole was very small. The rabbit got through, and Alice couldn't get through. Fortunately, the author of the story had foreseen that situation and provided there on the, at the bottom of the hole was a table with a little vial on it, with a little note that said, drink me. And so she took this and drank the contents of it. And as she did, she began to shrink. 
and down she went until she got to be just the right size where she could go through the hole and follow the rabbit into the land of wonders. And by now I know you think I must be losing it from jet lag. What does that have to do with anything? (laughs) We fell into a hole. And we can't get out. It's sin. The word that BBC says you can't use on the air. It's sin. We're going to talk about that more as the week goes on. It's sin. Can't get in. See a wonderful land. Hear people talk about joy and peace and fulfillment and forgiveness and all these wonderful things. And they seem so happy and they come and visit and look at us and they say there's so much love. And you seem so happy. How do I get it? Can I join the church? Maybe if I sing in the choir, I'll get it. Maybe if I take a, uh, do something, help out, I'll just get it. This is good company to be in, but you can't get in that way. See, you can't get in. You're looking through the door. You're looking through the window into a wonderful land, and you're just a spectator, and you can't get in. You want me to tell you why you can't get in? Because you're too big. You're too self-important. You're too good. Fortunately, our maker has made a provision for that. There is a book within our reach that says, read me. And when you start reading this book, you get smaller and smaller and smaller. And you find out that you are nothing. And then you get to be just the right size where God can save you. You can be forgiven and saved. You're not so important anymore. We're going to hear that again later on this week with two more men. One of them learned the lesson and the other didn't. But I'll tell you this. Your mama might have given you a good upbringing. But before God saves you, he's going to give you a good downbringing. He's going to take you down to Chinatown, like they say. You're going down. Down. The world is always trying to tell us, believe in yourself. Look within. Find strength within yourself. Try. Believe. and Realize yourself. Fulfill yourself. Self this and self that. And that, my friend, is exactly the problem. Self is the problem. It's got to go down and come to nothing. If it doesn't happen... See, later on, this man could thank the Lord he got into that situation because he could say, it helped me come to the end of myself. And you even thank the Lord. Once you're saved, you thank the Lord for the trials that brought you to the Lord. The trials weren't good, but where they took you was good. They took you to the Lord. A man in North Carolina thanked a friend of mine who was visiting him. He said, "I, I thank you for coming to see me. And I want you to know I thank the Lord, he said, for giving me cancer. Because I never would have become a Christian. I was too proud and the self-made man and independent and fulfilled. And he said, this punctured my balloon. He said, I thank the Lord for this cancer he gave me because because of that I came to know him as my Lord and Savior. He saw Jesus afar off. You know, that's how everybody sees Jesus. Verse 5, that's how everybody sees Jesus. Verse 6, sorry. 
Everybody sees Jesus afar off the first time. And if you don't understand a lot of things about Christ and Christianity and the gospel and the Christian life, maybe it's because you're not close enough. You're just looking at it from a little ways off, you see. What did he do? He saw Jesus afar off, and he ran. And that's what I like. That's what I like. He ran. He was in a hurry. Jesus was there. Was he going to leave? Was he going to get back in the boat and leave? He went running down there. He wanted to make the most of his opportunity. I see these people come and sit and listen and pick their teeth and think about it and try to remain composed and don't get too excited and don't do anything foolish and just mellow out and think about it and don't let anybody know that you got any real problems. And those are the kind of people that never get any help. You want a piece of advice? Get up and run. Run to the Lord. Run to the Lord. The Bible talks about times when the Lord is near and calling. And then he says later, because I called and you would not listen. Because I called and you would not respond. He says, later when your calamity comes upon you, you will call and I will not respond. The day of opportunity can pass. That's why the Bible says, behold now, the accepted time. Now is the day of salvation. God never promises tomorrow. Tomorrow is a promissory note. The only currency that's any good with God is now. See, and this man ran. He ran. I like that. He ran and he humbled himself. There's an unlikely worshiper for you. A man possessed by a legion of demons and he's humbled. He's down there on the ground. He's got his forehead on the ground before the Lord. You see, this man's going through a struggle. He's not a schizophrenic. He's a demoniac. He doesn't have a split personality. He has demons, this man. Not one. He has a legion. Because when he came up, and when he bowed down that way, it says, uh, he cried with a loud voice, saying, What have I to do with thee, Jesus, thou Son of the Most High God? I adjure thee by God that thou torment me not. That's not the voice of the man. That's the voice of the demon in him. The Lord didn't come to torment the man. Jesus doesn't come to torment people. He took torment for us on the cross. The demon speaking because and it explains it in verse 8 because he said this was how the conversation began. The man came up and, and bowed. He, he prostrated himself that way and the Lord said, Come out of the man, thou unclean spirit. This is the conversation how it began. He asked him, What is thy name? And he answered saying, My name is Legion for we are many. Well, now a full Roman legion had as many as 6,000 in it. We're not really sure if this is a, supposed to be a mathematical calculation that we're supposed to deduce by that that there were 6,000 demons. But we're sure of this, that it means that there were a lot of them. The point is not how many. The point is there was a multitude of them. Because one got in, and like we say in Spanish, vete a saber como. Go figure how that one, that first one got in. What did he do? Did they play with a Ouija board? I don't think so. 
What did they do? How did that first one get in? But once he did, he brought his friends. And this man was definitely outnumbered. My name is Legion, for we are many. Look at the forces that are at work here in these verses. As the Lord begins to minister to this man. First of all, you have Satan. You have the legion. You have the demons. The unclean spirit. Now, we don't believe in ghosts. And all those crazy things. Phantoms and things that people believe in. Demons, unclean spirits, are nothing in the world but fallen angels. They're angels who have rebelled. They have turned and followed Satan by choice instead of following the living and the true God. And they're spirit beings, fallen angels with angelic powers that they use for evil means, for evil purposes. That's all they are. And when people say they heard the voice of their their dead uncle speaking to them or they saw their dead uncle or this or that, all these things that people say, that's just a bunch of baloney. Fallen angels are terrifically powerful beings. When God made man and when the Lord Jesus came in the image of man, it says in Hebrews 2, it says, made a little lower than the angels. That's our place in creation. Men, humanity, is lower than the angels. Angels are spirit beings, not bound like we are to a physical body anchored to time and space like we are. Angels are spirit beings. They can do wonders. In Corinthians, Paul warns the Corinthians about how they can dis- how ca- they can disguise themselves and appear as ministers, angels of light, ministers of righteousness, and all the time they're demons. They're deceiving. See, Satan is at work here, and this is what he does. He ruins a life. This empty shell of a man that used to have friends, used to live in a home, used to be more or less. A happy, normal person, whatever that means. He's ruined. Satan is at work here. Society is at work here. People have tried to tame him. People have tried to bind him. They've tried to restrain him. If they had as many therapies as we have today for everything and uh, recovery groups and help groups, he would have been to all of them. But that wasn't where the problem was, you see. The problem this man had was a spiritual problem. It was not a social problem. The root of everything else uh, that was going wrong in his life was spiritual. And until you solve that, my friend, all you're doing is putting band-aids on a cancer. That's all you're doing. You're not getting anywhere. You can go get therapy until your ears turn green. And until your bank book is emptied out. All you're doing is putting band-aids on cancer. You've got to treat the cause, not the symptoms, you see. And this is what the Lord is going to do. Society couldn't help this man. Satan had ruined this man. But here's a Savior at work. And the Savior is the Lord Jesus. And he's the one who's in the business of rescuing ruined lives, of straightening out hopeless tangles. And this is what he does. He comes in. He deals with the demons. Look at what it says in verse 12. All the demons besought him. I like this. Praying demons. <laughs> you notice we have different ones who are praying here. First the demons pray. Look at it. Then come down to verse 17. 
Then the people who live in the area, the Gadarenes, they began to pray him or plead with him. The old King James word is pray, and it's good, it's fine there. They begin to pray him to depart out of their coast. And then you have in verse uh, 18, the man who had been possessed prayed him. He pled with him. He entreated him that he might go with him. Got three different prayers here. Three different requests. First of all, the demons are praying. They don't want to be sent away. They want to go into something. They want to inhabit some body. And they know they're not going to be allowed in the Lord's presence to inhabit any body, any human body there. So they want to go to the pigs rather than be sent away. And so when they get in the pigs, pigs are not as complex as humans. And they're ruined and destroyed immediately. Now, what happened to those pigs? Listen carefully. What happened to those pigs is a fast-forward version of what's happening to your life if Jesus Christ is not your Lord and Savior. And my friend, just because you're going through it in slow motion and you don't feel the impetus of it and you don't feel the speed of it, don't think you're not headed down just like them. What a sight that made. 2,000. That's what it says here. About 2,000 of them, verse 13. Ran violently down a steep place into the sea and were drowned. And there they are. What happens to animals when they drown? They float. Imagine what a mess that looked like the next day. A whole fleet, 2,000 dead, bloated pigs floating on the Sea of Galilee. Whichever side the wind and the waves blew them to, I can just imagine what a sight that was. That's the fast-forward version. If Jesus Christ is not your Lord and Savior, if he's not in control of your life, take a hint. This is what's coming. And the Lord doesn't want it to happen. See, people get all concerned about the pigs. What happened to the pigs? But what about the pigs? Animal rights. What happened to the pigs? Yeah, save the whales and abort the babies. What happened to the pigs? They worry about that. It says in verse 16, they, they that saw it told them how it befell him that was possessed with the demon and also concerning the swine. The pig also they told what happened to the pigs. What about our pigs? All that money, that's our investment. You just depressed my Dow Jones. I borrowed money to buy that herd of pigs. Yeah. They cared about the pigs. That's society for you. Money. Success. Not souls. Not eternity. And God only in emergencies. See? That's society for you. It says here, They went and told it, verse 14, told it in the city and the country. And when they went out to see what was done, 
it's possible that the pigs were community owned by more than one. You see that this was a joint venture. They'd gone together and bought these and they had men out taking care of them. And those men ran in and told in the town everything that had happened. So they all came out to see what was going on. Now the Lord's going to have an opportunity to meet the rest of the Gadarenes. Are the rest of the Gadarenes going to hear the gospel? You know why not? Because they're worried about pigs. That's all. They come out and they see this man. And look at him in verse 15. What was he doing before? In verse 3, 4, and 5. Running in the mountains and the tombs. Crying. Cutting himself with stones. With no clothes. Some of the other accounts tell. They see him sitting. Not running. Clothed. Not naked. And in his right mind, somebody said one time, the first time you ever get to your right mind is when you get saved. Until you trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you're just in a form of dementia. You have a mental illness. (laughs) It is. Uh, From the head to the foot, The whole body, the whole man is sick, Isaiah says in chapter 1. They don't think right. Their head is sick. Their heart is sick. They don't feel right. Their feet are sick. They don't walk. They don't behave right. The whole man is corrupt. The whole person is corrupt, corrupted and ruined by sin. They don't think right. First time he was in his right mind. You know, as a believer, I got saved when I was 24. I lived a few years before I got saved, and I'm not proud of them. Before I trusted the Lord Jesus Christ and let go of my life and let him have it, I ruined that many years of my life. And I look back on that and I say, what was I thinking? What was I thinking? And when you trust the Lord Jesus... To come into your life, to forgive your sin, to give you a new life, then you're going to say, what was I thinking before then? All those years, what was I thinking? What was I doing? That's what it was. You weren't in your right mind, poor thing. Or as they say in the South, bless your heart. (laughs) You weren't in your right mind. And it's true. They that saw it told how it befell to him that was possessed with the devil and also concerning the swine. They began to pray him to depart out of their coast. Here come the reactions. The word spreads. Now we're to the last part, the reactions in verses 16 to 20. The stories told about the swine, about the pigs, you notice there's no rejoicing. The people are not happy. They're not happy about what happened to that man. They're worried about the dead pigs and about the lost investment, probably. It says, coming to the ship, or they began to pray to him to depart out of their coast. And when he was coming to the ship, it means he's getting into it to leave. He's going to do what they asked. Then the demon-possessed man, or the man who had been demon-possessed, comes with a request. The people first request him to leave. They entreat him, please leave, go away. Jesus is bad for business. And I'll tell you this, they were right. In this sense, they were right. When the Lord comes into a situation that's messed up, he's going to straighten it out. If he comes in, he's going to start 
putting things in order. The Lord is never going to come into your life to be a good luck charm. He's not just going to sit back passively and observe what happens. If he comes into your life, he's going to start to put things in order. And you know what? That's why some people don't let him into their lives. Because they like the way they arrange their life. And they don't want anybody to touch it. Remember the pigs. Remember the fast forward version. And that's what happens. And so they ask him to leave. That's their request. And be careful. Because if you ask Jesus to leave, he will. He did it. He got in the boat. And now the man who once had been possessed of demons, who, who everyone was afraid of him, this man, they all ran and hid from him. And children were afraid of him. And mothers and fathers were afraid of him. And people took the other road to stay away from where he was. Now he's afraid of them. He was the terror of the community before. And he looks at those people and he looks at the Lord getting in the boat and it says in verse 18, He that had been possessed of the devil prayed him that he might be with him. Lord, don't leave me here with those people. Those people are demon possessed. (laughs) They're lovers of money and lovers of pigs and lovers of society and lovers of success and lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God. And he who had just been saved didn't want to be with that anymore. You know what? When somebody comes to know Christ and their sins are forgiven and they have a new life, suddenly they get a little bit of discernment about their companions. They do. And they, he looked at those and he said, not on your life. I'm not staying with those people. Let me in the boat, Lord. Move over, Peter and John. Hand me that oar. I know how to row. Come on, Lord. Let me go with you. He's ready to go. I like it. He had a little bit of discernment. But he didn't have as much as he thought he had. See, the Lord wanted him to stay there. He knew that man had a home. He knew more about that man than that man thought he did. He knew he had a home. And he knew he had people who used to be his friends and who were going to be his friends again. He said, you go home. Go home and tell them. Because the Lord was being forced to leave because he wasn't from there. He was being forced to leave. They, They insisted because entreaty doesn't mean just kindly saying, well, if you wouldn't mind. It means they were really insisting that he left. And so, the Lord says, you stay, because I can't. And the Lord might be saying that to some of us tonight. Wouldn't it be nice if when we trusted the Lord and our sins were forgiven, we all went to heaven right then with him? Wouldn't that be nice? And how many times when we look around in these situations we find in life and we say, boy, I wish the Lord would come. Not so much because we love the Lord, but because we want to get out of our particular situation, you know. Beam me up. (laughs) No. The Lord says, go home to your friends. And he doesn't say, go home and fit in. He doesn't say, just go home and live a a different life and let them see. He is going to do that. Now, don't get me wrong. He is going to do that because he is a different person. His life has been changed. But the Lord says, go home and open your mouth. He said, go home and tell them. Spell it out. This is a horse. Spell it out. Tell them what happened. Don't let them deduce it over various years of observing you. Tell them what happened, he says. People will listen to that. They might not listen to you preach a gospel sermon to them. 
But they'll listen to you tell them what happened in your life. You can share your personal testimony. People are always interested in a story. What they call a human interest story. See? Here's one of human interest value. Tell them how great things the Lord has done for you. The Lord never tells anybody who's not a true believer in him to go do that. Because if you're not really a believer, the Lord hasn't done anything great for you yet. If you just know about him, like all those people who heard about him and listened to what he said and saw what he did, but they never knew him personally, there hasn't been anything great done in your life. If your sins haven't been forgiven and your life is not new, if you're the same old you that you always were, except that now you can sing a few choruses or you have a few different companions, you don't have anything great to tell. You need to get saved, friend. You need to bend down bow down in the presence of the Lord and say, it's me, it's me, O Lord, standing in the need of prayer. It's me. Then you can get up and go tell people what Jesus did. What would you tell them tonight? Let me just ask you that. Suppose the Lord said to you, go tell your friends what the Lord has done in your life. What would you say? A friend of mine asked, and we're going to close with this, a friend of mine asked that and in Guatemala, he was talking to some, uh, excuse me, in um, Nicaragua, he was talking to some fellows and he said, um, what's the greatest thing Jesus Christ has done for you? And the man said, well, uh, my little boy had a fever one time and we prayed to Jesus and, and Jesus healed him of his fever. He said, that's really good. And he said, I believe he did that. But he said, that's pathetic. If that's the best thing you can say that Jesus Christ ever did for you. That's it? You're headed into eternity and that's the only thing you can say? Ah, he took away my whatever sickness this was. Maybe it was really a bad sickness. Maybe it was cancer. Maybe it was terminal. That the best thing he's ever done for you? My friend said to these people, he said, I'll tell you the best thing. He said, now you went first and you told me. He said, now I'm going to tell you the best thing he ever did for me. I was condemned to death for all eternity because of my sins. And Jesus forgave them. He washed them all away and he made me a different person. He died on the cross for me. And he lives and he changed my life. He said, that's the best thing he's ever done for me. And they said, oh, I never thought about it that way. And he said, yeah, that's obvious. What's the, what would you tell them? Go and tell them what Jesus, have you got something to tell what Jesus did for you? I do. And a lot of us here tonight do. And if you don't, then you better make that tonight, that night, when Jesus does that wonderful thing for you. And he forgives your sins and gives you a new life. They lost their pigs and were sad. They lost their Savior and were glad. And then they lost their souls. May the Lord help us tonight to learn what it means to cooperate with Him and to take advantage of the wonderful power of God when He is near and able to save. Don't put it off till tomorrow. Run to Him while there's still time. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, this evening we thank you for the power that you have. Power over wind and waves is wonderful, Lord. Power over demons is wonderful, Lord. 
But that's not the power we need. We need your power over our hearts and lives. Your power to forgive sin. Your power to make a person new from the inside out. To give a new heart. To make us new creatures in Christ. To wash away all the condemnation. And give a new life. We thank you for that power. We thank you for going to Calvary. We thank you for suffering there. Taking the punishment for our sins. Thank you for rising from the dead. And that as you live in power today. You're willing to meet with any of us. In the way you met with that poor man. In the land of the Gadarenes. That was an awful Failure by modern evangelistic standards. Only one man got saved. But everyone got saved that wanted to, Lord. And we know that that's the way it will be. When time stops and we all go into eternity forever, you'll say everyone got help who wanted it. We pray for those people here tonight who need that help, that they'll really want it, and that they'll take it from you tonight. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.